predestination, heaven, and other, you know, small topics like that. All that and more on this episode of The Backdrop. That's right, we've got just a couple minor little topics on tap today that haven't at all created any controversy whatsoever in the Christian church over the centuries. We're looking at the final verses of chapter 8 today, where Paul pulls together the argument he's been making in this section of the letter, chapters 5 through 8. To quote N.T. Wright for the first time, but certainly not the last in this episode, the Exodus theme of this section of the letter comes out fully in the open. What God did for Israel at the Red Sea What God did for Jesus at Easter, God will do, not only for those who are in Christ, but for the whole created order. Paul is, in other words, turning in these verses to the cosmic creation-wide implications of what he has been saying, and then emphasizes along with that the assuredness of it all, that God will accomplish this goal, no matter what. So, with that framing, let us dive in with verses 12 to 17 of chapter 8. So then, my dear family, we are in debt, but not to human flesh, to live our life in that way. If you live in accordance with the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are led by the Spirit of God, you see, are God's children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, did you, to go back again into the state of fear? No, you received the spirit of sonship, in whom we call out Abba, Father, When that happens, it is the Spirit itself testifying along with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Messiah, as long as we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This passage clearly connects with the section we dealt with in the previous episode with the distinction between living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit, the one leading to death the other to life. The reason I broke off last episode where I did, though, is that in this passage, we see a shift into the next part of Paul's thinking, the shift from exploring that contrast to establishing the basis for confidence that Christians have, the assurance that what Paul is saying is in fact true, and what he says is coming will in fact come to pass. Many people struggle with the question of whether they are in fact saved, to use the common terminology. How good do I have to be to keep my salvation? How bad would I have to be to lose it? That sort of thing. But in this final section of chapter 8, Paul wants to be clear that all who put their trust in Jesus, who are therefore led by the Spirit of God, can be confident that their status as children of God is secure. And to begin making this case, he once again returns to the Exodus story. Although, as usual, he does so in a way that it would be possible to skip right past without noticing for those of us who are reading today. In verse 14, Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit. Seems simple enough. And for us who have been reading the New Testament for all or part of our lives, not terribly remarkable sounding. For a first century Jew, however, the obvious reference point for God's Spirit leading God's children out of slavery would have been the Exodus story specifically the pillars of cloud and fire that led and protected the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness. In the Exodus story, the people become afraid that this Yahweh God who had set them free from Egypt might have abandoned them. 
when they left the territory of Egypt and made their way into the wilderness beyond. Was Yahweh just powerful in Egypt? Did their power extend to Israel's present reality? Could they trust this Yahweh to see them through to the promised land? In response to those questions, God appears as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, offering not only protection to the people, as when the pillar of fire cuts off Pharaoh's chariots, but also offering them assurance. If the people ever had doubts about Yahweh, well, all they had to do was look up at the towering confidence booster that was right there at all times. Yes, God was still with them. Yes, they were still Yahweh's children. Yes, God would accompany them all the way to the end of their journey. And Paul's goal here is to make the very same point for the church. Yes, you really are God's children. Yes, God is still with you. Yes, God will see you through to the end. God doesn't show up as a towering pillar of fire, although the Spirit does show up as tongues of fire in the Pentecost story. But God's presence is there as the Spirit which is inside us, leading us away from fear and slavery and towards life. And so we are empowered by God to not go back to slavery to sin, but to continue to live aligned with God's character and God's purposes in the world. God is not distant, does not leave us to guess about our status in their sight. We are God's children and can approach God in the way a child would a loving parent. And not only that, we are then heirs alongside Jesus. We will inherit all that God has promised, just as assuredly as a child inherits the family estate when the time comes. And yet, again, Paul indicates that suffering seems to be a part of all this. It seems to me that Paul is trying very hard to counter the idea that suffering might be evidence that God has abandoned us. No, Jesus suffered. We suffer, but we are still God's children, and God's presence will be with us through the suffering to the other side. This is not now, nor was it in Paul's day, the way most people thought about suffering. Wait, isn't God supposed to prevent suffering? If God is pleased with me, why are bad things happening? The concept of karma, whether called by that name or not, is pretty pervasive in human history. No matter how much counter evidence actual life produces of bad people getting good things and bad things happening to good people. We watched The Sound of Music in our house this past week, and the one part of that three-hour-long movie we fast-forwarded through was the saccharine song of Maria singing about how she must have done something good in her otherwise misspent youth and childhood to deserve Captain Von Trapp's love. Nope. (laughs) Not how things work. (laughs) To put it bluntly, karma is bullshit, but our need to believe that we can control what happens to us in some way, it just won't die. No matter how many times we are reminded that we don't actually have that level of control. Which is why this topic keeps coming up for Paul as well. No, suffering is not evidence that God, or the gods, are angry. So, how should we work all this out then? Paul continues in verse 18. This is how I work it out. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting on the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. Yes, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection, in the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. 
Let me explain. We know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. Not only so, we too, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our body. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. Paul pictures a balancing scale, with our suffering on one side of the scale, and the glory we are destined for on the other. And the glory so far outweighs the suffering that it's hardly even worth weighing them at all. Paul doesn't mention it explicitly here, but the logic harkens back to all he said already about Jesus' death and resurrection in this letter. How do we know that the glory will outweigh the suffering? Well, consider Jesus' suffering, and then his resurrection, his glory. Just as it was for Jesus, so it will be for us. And we need to pause here for a second, because my hunch is that many of us have read this first verse, that ultimate glory outweighs our current suffering, and haven't considered its connection with what immediately follows it. But this verse is not an isolated one, a sentence waiting to be used as a proof text. It is part of an argument that continues into the next verses. How this verse has tended to be read is that our current earthly suffering will be outweighed by future heavenly bliss, that the temporary bad stuff happening here is no match for the eternity of happiness we individuals will experience later. But this is not what Paul goes on to talk about in verse 19 and following. And if we think of Romans as a letter about how individual sinners can get their sin taken away so that they can go to heaven one day, which is how a lot of us were taught to read it, then the shift Paul makes right here between verses 18 and 19, it doesn't make much sense. But if we read the letter Paul actually wrote, the one we've been trying to explore together in this series, it makes all the sense in the world. Paul goes on to talk about what that glory we are waiting for consists of. And it isn't floating around a cloud in a white robe or whatever. He goes on to talk about creation, creation groaning in anticipation of God's children being revealed. That creation itself has been subject to slavery and decay, waiting for freedom that would come not when God waved a magic wand or made it all disappear, but when God's children were glorified. The glory we are waiting for that outweighs our current suffering is the glorification that creation is waiting for so that it can be freed from decay. This needs some unpacking because many of us have been taught the wrong fundamental story in all this. The narrative Paul sees for the universe is one where humans were created in the image of God, meaning not that we have God's same facial features like Harry Potter, who's forever told that he has his mother's eyes, but that we are God's representatives and partners in ruling well over creation. When a king in the ancient Near East was called the image of the gods, it was because he ruled in place of the gods on a throne that represented both his own power and his God's power. Genesis tells of a creation that humans are intended to rule over as representatives of Yahweh God. And it is all humanity that is intended to do this, to be the image of God, not just the king, importantly. Creation, in the narrative Paul is working from, was an unfinished work that God intended humans to continue working on. Creation needed to be ruled over, 
subdued, governed wisely and well. It needed to be filled and completed, and humans were the ones who were intended to do that work alongside God. But human sin, their insistence to put their trust in things other than God, got in the way of all that. And so the problem with human sin is not simply that individual humans did bad things and deserve punishment for being so bad. The problem with human sin is that all of creation has been knocked off balance. Paul, I think, would look at all that is wrong with the world, not just the things humans cause, but everything, natural disasters and disease and all the rest, and would say that exists because of humans not doing what they were created to do. Not, as is sometimes thought, that Eve eating a fruit magically caused volcanoes to start erupting and tigers to start eating other animals or something. But rather, I think, I think a better way of thinking about this is that humans had a God-given vocation to be God's partners in ruling well over creation so that all creation would be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. That was the role humans were supposed to play. But they walked away from that vocation. And humans walking away meant that all the problems that still existed in creation remained unsolved. This is a tough one to wrap our minds around because it requires us to imagine things that fundamentally don't exist. But I think that had humans never walked away in the first place, we would have used our creativity, our God-given creativity, alongside God's inspiration in order to accomplish technological feats we can't even dream of today. That we would have found cures to more diseases, perhaps them all. That we would have found ways to contain volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or else ways of predicting them and other natural disasters and then preventing those disasters from causing the suffering they do currently. That we would have learned how to influence and govern nature so that probably not tigers start eating grass or something, but some perfect version of the Lion King's circle of life would exist or something. I don't want to get too far down a tangent here, but I think it's important that we be thinking this way to understand what Paul is saying. Creation is groaning and decaying because of human sin, not because my lying causes cancer, (laughs) but because our collective choice to not be who God made us to be, both directly and indirectly, prevents creation from being what God made it to be directly through our greed and exploitation of the natural world, for example, indirectly through our lack of solutions for the problems that need solving and that God intended to help us solve. Creation is longing for us to be glorified, not because it just can't wait to listen to us strumming our harps on the clouds, but because it desperately needs us to be the image of God, to be God's representatives and to rule wisely and well over all of creation. In some sense, which I don't think we will totally understand until we see it in action, God's plan continues to be that creation will be made new through our glorification. This is what we are hoping and waiting patiently for, as Paul puts it in verse 25. We are hoping and waiting patiently for the time when we are glorified. And glorified here means when we are restored fully to the image of God to the role as partners with God in taking care of creation. We don't think of glory this way, but we've already seen how the glory of God, usually in the Old Testament, referred to God's presence in a place. The temple filled with God's glory wasn't referring to the ambiance of the place. It was referring to God's self being present in the place. And so we are glorified 
when we are filled with God's presence, both in the sense of the spirit living in us, but also in the sense of filling the role of image bearer that we were created to fill. God is present through us because we are God's representatives. Now, at first glance, this might seem overly self-aggrandizing or even blasphemous, but I think we already have a sense of this right now. We sometimes experience God's presence through one another as we are present with and care for each other. Partnering with humans is how God chooses to do much of the work God intends to do. And Paul sees that only intensifying in the future. This is what our future destiny is. Not a disembodied heaven sitting around literally singing to God and stroking the divine ego for eternity, as some people seem to think, I guess, but working alongside God in caring for creation, praising God through our work and our interactions with one another in creation as we accurately reflect God's character to the world made new around us. I don't think we can totally understand what this will mean in practice, but sitting around bored with nothing much important to do (laughs) is certainly not what Paul had in mind for our eternal destiny. That doesn't sound much like life to me. As N.T. Wright puts it, this resurrection life is never something to be enjoyed simply for itself. Those renewed at the last, those who share in the glory of the Messiah, will receive an inheritance, which will be the entire world. There they will have tasks to perform, tasks to do with the liberation of creation from the injustice, misery, bondage, corruption, and death that at present characterize it. The following verses then turn to more of the present application of all of what Paul is saying. So this is starting in verse 26. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we ought to. But that same spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And the searcher of hearts knows what the spirit is thinking because the spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. As we wait for this future glorification to happen, we groan, just as creation groans. And the Spirit of God helps us to groan. And that groaning comes out in prayer, even prayer that is deeper than what we could even imagine. We lament and long for God to intervene in this broken world, And the Spirit guides our laments and longings in some sense. And then Paul makes a massive shift in topic from this longing and groaning for a world made new when humanity would take up its role as God's image bearers and shifts to making a theological statement about predestination, or so the Calvinists would like us to believe. It should come as no surprise that I think Paul's line of thought is actually very consistent here. This is not a shift. It is a return to the idea that we can be assured that all of this will, in fact, take place. We, creation, and the Spirit, all groan and long for God to remake the world and to bring about our glorification, which, again, means our being made into the image of God that we were meant to be. And we can be sure that God will, in fact, do it, even if it seems like a long way off in this current time of suffering. That is what Paul is saying here. 
all these things will be worked together for good. Not all these things are good, but God will bring good out of them as we are formed in patience and character and hope through suffering. You remember back in chapter five, when Paul said that suffering produced character and hope? Well, now we're returning to that very idea, pulling this whole section of the letter together. If we are going to be God's image bearers, ruling well over creation, then we need our character to be formed so that we can actually do that well. And how does God accomplish this? Through working the suffering that we experience now into character so that we would be the mature God-reflecting people that we need to be to rule well over creation. That is the purpose which God has called us according to, as verse 28 says. The purpose we've been called to is to reflect God's character to the world. And to do that, we need God to build such a character in us, working all things to our good in that sense so that we can actually fulfill our purpose well when the time comes. This is the process by which we become conformed to the image of Jesus, as verse 29 says. God working all things together to conform us to the image of Jesus is the way that we become the true image of God, as Genesis 3 puts it. It is what makes it possible for us to fulfill the purpose God has called us to, a purpose that is not mainly about us at all, but is instead about the world and the plans God has for the world. And this brings us back to verses 29 and 30, the predestination verses. Many have taken these and understood them to mean that God calls some individuals to be saved and others to be damned. But especially in light of what we've been talking about up until now, we should see that this is at the very least too individualistic. God calls people so that they might then represent God to the world and bring more people into God's family and more of creation into God's kingdom. To quote N.T. Wright, as true image bearers, they might reflect that same image into the world, bringing to creation the healing, freedom, and life for which it longs. To be conformed to the image of God or of God's Son is a dynamic, not a static, concept. Reflecting God into the world is a matter of costly vocation. Thinking about what Paul says about God's foreknowledge and predestination as if it were about who's in and who's out is to miss the point that Paul's making and to miss how the Bible as a whole looks at being God's chosen people. The point is always that one is chosen so that the kingdom of God can be expanded. God's choosing is not to the exclusion of others, but for the sake of others. God chooses to work through some to reach more. God chooses to work through some to heal the entire world. And Paul's point in these verses says nothing about people being left out. It's entirely focused on the assurance of the members of the church now. They can be confident that God is not going to stop halfway, but will carry this project through to the end, and that their membership in God's family is not in doubt. And this is how Paul ends this section of the letter, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to all this? If God is for us, who is against us? God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How then will he not, with him, freely give all things to us? Who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? It is God who declares them in the right. Who is going to condemn? 
It's the Messiah Jesus who has died, or rather has been raised, who is at God's right hand and who also prays on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the Messiah's love? Suffering or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As the Bible says, because of you we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep destined for the slaughter? No. In all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus, our Lord. Paul closes with a beautiful vision of the confidence Jesus' followers can have that they are truly God's children. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is going to bring a charge against us when the judge, God, has already ruled in our favor? Who is going to condemn us when Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, prays for us and when we have died and been raised with him? The implied answer to all Paul's rhetorical questions is that no one can condemn. No one can accuse. No one can separate us. We are safe. Our hope is assured. In the middle of this, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. As the Bible says, because of you, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep destined for the slaughter, which is a psalm that asks the same question Paul is asking here. Does present suffering indicate that God is not faithful, that God will or has abandoned us? And just as Paul concludes here, so the psalm concludes that no, God can be trusted to put things right again. The vision Paul has is for humans to become fully what they were created to be and that they would then fulfill the role that they were created to fulfill, that all creation would become what God created it to be. This is not some pie in the sky dream. It is a reality that we can hope for, even if we can't see it just yet, knowing that our God can be trusted and our God will bring it to completion. How do we know? Because we know the extent of God's love through King Jesus, our Lord. As Wesley says in The Princess Bride, death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a little while. And that's how the second section of this book ends. We're halfway there. I thought next time before diving into chapter 9, which begins the third main section of the letter, we might start with a quick recap of where we are and where we have been so as to kind of get our bearings again. This book is dense and repetitive at the same time, (laughs) and that makes things challenging to kind of keep sense of where we are. So we'll begin with a quick recap of the story we've seen Paul telling so far, in contrast to the story this book is often forced into, and then we'll go through chapter nine. So thanks for listening. I hope this was a helpful deep dive into chapter eight, and I will see you next time. Bye.